All right. Thank you, Pastor Jen. We are continuing in our series uh, through Titus, our series titled Devoted. As I'm getting older, I don't feel old yet, but definitely older. One of the things that is sort of marking my life these days is I'm finding myself a bit more forgetful, forgetful of where I left my car keys, my wallet, uh, maybe a, a bill I was supposed to take care of today, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, according to the NIH website, National Institute of Health, uh, that there is a normal aging process. And along with that normal aging process, we have some forgetfulness. Uh, and literally, they say making a bad decision once in a while is normal as you get older. Missing a monthly payment is normal as you get older. Forgetting which day it is and then remembering it later. Uh, sometimes forgetting which word to use or losing things from time to time. These are all things that we ought to consider as a normal part of aging. But in all seriousness, I wonder if sometimes as Christians or as the church, we forget what we are doing in life, our purpose, our meaning, how we are spending our days, our mission, what we ought to be doing. And to the church, uh, back here when, when Paul wrote this to Titus, he begins with this reminder to you know, hey, this is what you're going to speak of. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to talk to the church about. Paul is telling Titus to not hold back, to recall the memory of the Christians and the church to something that was taught before, something that has already been established. You know, Paul has already said over and over again in, in this letter to Titus that, that grace is the motivation. Grace is the motivation for doing good works, for obedience. And he comes back to that here in chapter 3. In fact, if you've been following along with us in our series, maybe you've, you feel like Paul, he's been kind of going back and forth. He talks about mercy and grace and the coming of Christ and all that that means and then how we ought to live a life of good works. And he's been kind of going back and forth between those two major themes. And here he comes back to a life of good works and this reminder of what this life is supposed to be like. And so we're going to break it down into three parts today. Uh, uh, chapter 3, 1 to 8. You've got the life, the good life, the gospel life of good works. You've got a reminder of the old life. You've got a reminder, a very important reminder, the third thing, of how we went from the old life to this new gospel life. Well, when we understand the gospel-driven life of good works, the first thing Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. The word submissive is a word that sometimes elicits a negative response from us. At times can make us uncomfortable. We maybe don't want to use that word, right? To be submissive. We might sometimes equate that word with Maybe oppression or injustice or tyranny. Or it's a picture or image of someone not being strong 
for themselves, not standing up for who they are or what they believe in. But here Paul's idea, I think, and concept and what he's trying to communicate to Titus and to the church at Crete back then is, I think it's very simple that there is a system of authority in place, that there are laws and rules that govern you. And as a Christian, those laws that are in place regarding murder, stealing, taxes, all of those laws are what we ought to subject ourselves to. We put ourselves under those laws. Paul is not saying here that if your local ruler is walking around town and you run into him and he says, hey, wash my horse, wash my car, or get me a cup of coffee, a cup of joe, that we would kowtow to him and, and run off and have this submissive sort of uh, attitude. No, Paul is saying, look, as Christians, as the church, we are to be lawful citizens of where we live. We're not to be criminals. Interestingly, in Romans 13.1, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And here he goes into even further detail, and he explains that all authority exists because it was God's decision. It was in His authority, and it was in His wisdom. And if you think about this, that authority that God establishes, what does that authority, what does that system allow for us, for mankind, for humans, for you and I? What it does is it, it lets us enjoy this very basic, sort of fundamental level of peace, order, Life here on earth, right? Without that system of authority, uh, our world, our, our society would quickly become a place, uh, maybe chaos, right? There's no rules to govern people. There's only people doing whatever he or she desires or wants or thinks is right. There's no control. There's no temporary peace. There's no hope in that kind of system or world. Sadly, uh, the history of mankind has shown that such a system of authority is supposed to provide order, supposed to provide peace, but it can be easily become unjust, it can easily become tyrannical. We recognize that. Instead of bringing peace, it could become a source of despair or anger. However, Paul in Romans, in Titus, he doesn't give any qualifications here to the church. He doesn't say, if it pleases you, if your authorities are doing what you think is right, then go ahead, submit. No. The Bible does give us a clear principle. Acts 5.29, the famous, we must obey God rather than men. Of course, there is this clear biblical principle that any authority that God establishes must not undermine his ultimate authority. And so as Christians, we're not called to obey men no matter what, right? There's no such kind of no limits, uh, etc., cetera, uh, something like that, no. So he calls the, the church and Christians, 
reminds them, look, this is how we live in the world today. We are to be lawful. We're to listen, to submit ourselves uh, to the laws of the land. And then secondly, he says in verse 1, we're to be ready for every good work. To be ready for every good work. I love how Paul puts it here. There are times in life where we prepare ourselves for things, don't we? It can be as simple as getting ready for a vacation. It could be more complicated, getting ready for marriage, getting ready for work, getting prepared for your career, etc. But have we ever thought about this? Being ready for every good work. In Titus 2.14, right, we're told that Christians are to be people who are zealous for good works. This is at the core of who we are. To be zealous literally means to be boiling hot, highly committed is the concept there. To be zealous for good works. And it reminds us then that, you know, Christ saves us, he redeems us, we're created to be the church, his people, but what are we to be like? Eager to live a certain way, right? Eager to be a certain way. This means that we are not to be casual about this concept of good works. We don't pick and choose. It's not this idea of putting it on our calendar and saying, hey, look, uh, here's my moment. We're here in, in uh, July. I'm putting it in my calendar. Come September, there will be my week of good works. Paul's challenge to Titus to take this message to the church is to be ready. To be ready implies at all times in life, whether you are in this situation or that situation, as you go from this place to that place, as you're at church, as you're at home, as you're at work, as you're with your friends, that you are prepared, that you are ready. Ready for good. We often think as Christians that uh, there can be a, a sort of a safe place, a safe environment for us to do good, right? It's a place where uh, others are doing good. It's a place where uh, it's, it's, we, we, we come in, and of course, there's strength in that. And I'm not trying to belittle that or to say that that's not great. That's important. But if we only choose to do good in a certain environment, a certain time, right, I think that contradicts what Scripture is telling us here. Paul continues in verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And here we kind of see a movement. As Paul's been talking about the Christian's impact, message, uh, witness to uh, uh, culture, to society, to the world that they are a part of. He moves from how we act towards, towards the government and towards being lawful citizens. And now he begins to speak about how we carry ourselves and the type of relationship we are to have with other people. And right away he says to speak evil of no one, right? To slander no one. And this is difficult to not use our words speech to malign someone, to cause trouble, to stir up ill will towards someone. And this is something that we find ourselves doing comfortably sometimes. 
to avoid quarreling, to be peaceful people, to be a church, a group of people who embrace the opposite of being argumentative, quarrelsome, picking fights. Maybe in a way it could be summed up in what Paul says, uh, this attitude of showing perfect courtesy. Perfect courtesy toward all people. When I think of courtesy, right, it's this kind of sort of maybe manners, right? Kind of like how I should act, uh, things I should say, I sh you know. Um, and, but when you look at the original language and what I think Paul is really talking about, in a way, we can't avoid the concept of true humility. It's not just what we do externally. It's what's in our heart. It's what's in our heart. And when we think of that concept of humility, then we are putting others before we put uh, ourselves. It's, it's, it's an attitude that carries out or, or comes through, shines through in our actions uh, and in our speech. Kent Hughes has, has this quote, and he says, look, this is not doormat Christianity, passively letting people trample all over you, but is rather the exercise of the greater strength of not responding to evil with evil for the good of others. Those in the church, including its leaders, must recognize how disappointing and defeating it is for the people of God to be at odds or to speak ill of each other or not to be considerate of the weaknesses in others that may have caused their failures, unkind words, or inappropriate actions. Paul is not telling us to just be trampled upon, to just be a doormat. No, but to truly be humble as Christ was humble. To say, you know what? There is a witness that I must bear to those around me. And right away, as, as Paul shares this, he's going to remind Titus, and, he's gonna, and in, in effect, reminding the Christians in Crete, look, remember this. Remember what we were originally like. Remember our old life. Our old life. And maybe for Paul, it's this idea that to fully understand who we are today, to fully understand the life we are today, and, and maybe this, if we're really going to try to be humble, right? Perfect courtesy, humility, and become submissive, and subject ourselves to obedience, then maybe what we have to remember is who we used to be, what our lives used to be like. Right? Paul says, look, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. My wife and I, we got married in 1999. <laughs> if you look at our wedding pictures, it's hilarious, right? The, the style of, of our attire, right? I had a, an interesting tuxedo with tails, and, um, you know, my wife had the gloves and the hairstyles we had. It's, it's, it's hilarious. You can find it on my Instagram feed on one of my anniversary posts. But one thing I distinctly remember, we were, and I was 26, I was still 
trying to finish my master's at semin in seminary and my wife was still trying to get her master's and so we were both full-time students and the reality of, of our days back then was that we had much more expenses than we had income. And so every month we saw our debt increasing and so maybe one way to describe it was that it just financially was very difficult for us. It was a stressful time. But remembering that helps me today to appreciate, right, or to be grateful of what I have today. It helps me to not, no, look at everything that everyone else has and say, you know what, that's what God should be giving me. That's the reward he should be giving to me. And instead, I can be grateful of what I have today and the blessings he's already poured out into my life. And maybe this is what Paul is trying to do for the church. He says, we were once foolish and disobedient. And maybe we think we're wise. We think we're smart. We think we can figure everything out. All we have to do is find the right how-to video or blog or book or talk to the right person who's been there before us. And we could figure it all out. But Tim Chester has a great quote on this, on what foolishness really is. A fool is not necessarily an avowed atheist. It is someone who lives as if God does not exist. To ignore God is the definition of folly. And a disobedient person is someone who rejects God's rule and wants to run their own life. This rejection of God then affects everything else. Our thinking, we were foolish and deceived. Our behavior, we were disobedient and enslaved. It's a great quote, you guys. This is the foolishness of our old lives. We had no God. We did not want to subject ourselves to a higher authority. We didn't believe or trust in that authority. And so rather than obeying God and the design that he created for us, we set ourselves up as God. That is complete folly. Foolishness. So there is no room for us to be wise without Christ or without God. Without acknowledging the creator, without acknowledging the author, the good author of all life. And our own existence, as well as the universe. There is no wisdom there. We were slaves It's a metaphor that is used often to describe the bondage of sin or the power of sin. We think we're free. We think we could do whatever we want, and so that's freedom. There's no one telling us what to do, no one telling us what is right or wrong. We get to tell ourselves what is right or wrong. But that's actually a life of bondage and slavery. Why? Because we are subject now to our own sinfulness, to what we desire, and we can never escape that. That's the trap. And it's an unending trap. And so that freedom is a life of chasing possessions and chasing pleasures and chasing 
philosophies, whatever it is we think can describe the meaning of life. <laughs> I used the quotes at the wrong time. The meaning of life. Passing our days in malice and envy. <laughs> malice is that evil attitude where you wish bad things would happen to someone else. You literally wish something terrible would happen to someone else. <laughs> someone zooms by you on the freeway and you're like, I hope they get pulled over. Oh, I don't, I don't know if that's a good illustration because, you know, there's some justice we desire there, right? <laughs> they, they cut you off and you're like, no, I want safety. I don't want them to cause any accidents. But I don't know if I have to illustrate this, right? We probably know what this is about. Wishing bad things would happen to someone. Envy, the desire to possess what we don't have. And so instead of being grateful or appreciating what God has given to us or what is already in our lives, what are we full of? This desire to get what we don't have. And by definition, John MacArthur has this great, great quote on envy. He says, envy is a sin that carries its own reward. Think about this. It guarantees its own frustration and disappointment. By definition, the envious person cannot be satisfied with what he has and will always crave for more. Right? That's a great, great little quote there on envy. By definition, you're never satisfied with what you have. And so what happens? You crave what you do not have. You want more. You want more. And no matter what you have, no matter what you have already obtained or been gifted, it's never enough. There is no such thing as satisfaction. And instead, the reward is what? Frustration and disappointment. But this is the description, the very description of our life before Christ, of our old life. And ultimately then, what does it lead to? Being hated by others and hating one another. Being hated by others and hating one another. This is destructive. It's destruction at its core, being hated and hating someone else. But this is the natural outworking of what? Of this, of being foolish, of being disobedient, of being led astray, of being slaves to possessions and pleasures, of passing our days in malice and envy. At the end, there is nothing else waiting for us except hatred. I feel like Paul is so good at describing that old life. You know, Spurgeon on this, and he says, look, we can't just read this and then be like, all right, whatever. He thinks Paul wants us to feel what he's writing, to remember. To remember what it was like to have days like this. Every day you wake up. And what do you know that day? Just foolishness? Being deceived? I, I mean, come on. That, that is one thing I just cannot stand. One of my pet peeves in life is, you know, I, I love how the, the phones today, when, when you get a number, there's all, like, it says spam likely. <laughs> Don't you love that? I, that is so awesome. 
My phone is detecting someone who's trying to deceive me. I hate being deceived. That was every day of my old life. My heart? Oh, come on. Malice and envy. Being hated and hating others. And starting in verse 4, Paul begins to lay out the contrast to what we were like and what God is like. All right? How we're taken from that old life to the new life, the gospel-driven life of good works. He says, look, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. All right? So, Look at that imagery and that description that Paul is laying out for us here. This world of of hatred and being hated, of malice and envy, of being deceived, of being enslaved. And into that world and existence comes what appears? The goodness and loving kindness of God. And so here's the three ways I want to sum up the gospel that is presented here in these verses. The first thing is that there is the love of God that appears. He cares for us. He loves us. It is the opposite of hatred. It is the opposite of being hated and hating others. It is the opposite of malice and envy. He does not desire bad things to happen to us. He doesn't look at us and go, look, here is this disobedient creature of mine. I've created him. I've given him every reason to love me and to obey. But he has rebelled. He has said, I am not his God. You know what? I hope he, man, I... I hope he he gets everything that's coming to him. God has the opposite approach towards us. One of love. One of kindness. One of goodness. And this is the really the beauty of the gospel. That we weren't lovable when he decided to love us. We're the exact opposite. But not only did he love us and care for us, he didn't just leave us in that state. He didn't leave us with that heart of hate. He transformed us. He changed us. Right? Verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates us. He makes us a new creation and makes us a new life. That transformation is what he does. It's not by our works. It's not by us achieving some state of nirvana, of us achieving enough wisdom, enough know-how to figure out how do I make my heart change? How do I remove the hate and instead place it with this love of Christ or something? He, he doesn't leave us in the wretched condition we're in. Transforms us. And that emphasis here in verse 5 is the work that God does. He washes us cleanses us. He removes the power and hold of sin and he gives us a reason to live and to hope. And the third thing I think Paul describes here is that God saves us. Look at verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. To be justified is to be declared righteous. 
A simple image of that is to stand before God and the high throne of judgment. And despite our failures and despite our sinfulness, what happens? We're declared and considered legally righteous, just as if we had been the ones to perfectly obey God. And since we're declared that way, since the court and the high king will consider us to be innocent, even though we're not, then there is no question of what inheritance we'll receive, of our future, of what we have in Christ. And so then we have this hope, the hope of eternal life. And so because he loves us, and because he changes us and transforms us, and because he saves us, And he says, look, verse 8, this saying is trustworthy. Hey, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The gospel is the reason why, the reason why we are to be ready, to be ready to do every good work. to devote ourselves to that. This is an incredible challenge for you and I. But instead of thinking of it that way, maybe we can understand it in this way. This is the life. This is the life that the gospel saves us to. This is what defines us as Christians. This is what defines the church. And if we're having trouble remembering this, then maybe what we have to remember is what God has saved us from. Being deceived, being enslaved, the malice, the hatred, that life. And it was by His grace. So today, and the reality of today is, is probably unlike any other week or month. It's, it is such an interesting, <laughs> maybe that's not even a good word, I don't know, to describe the day we're living in today. But if you've been loved by Christ, transformed and saved, justified, and now you have the promise of the inheritance, then there's a life we're called to live today. Are we ready? (laughs) Right? Are we ready for every good work? Are we getting ready for every good work? May the gospel motivate, move you, remind you to be ready for every good work. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this series. Yes, we have received 
the gift of life, eternal life. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been declared righteous. We've been transformed from being hated people to being loved by God. What does that mean for us today? May we not forget the gospel-driven life of good works, of making a difference, of being ready day in and day out to live for you and to obey you and follow you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.